The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. So, Pastor Jonathan has been taking us through the Beatitudes. So I am going to take you through this part of the series about Jesus and the law. And if you have had an opportunity this week to read through uh, Matthew 5, you will know that Jesus then goes through and starts to address the people about all aspects of the law. And you think, this is rather dry, isn't it? And, uh, well, it is and it isn't because of what Jesus brings about it. Now... As he speaks to the people gathered around him on that mountainside on that morning, they would have had a knowledge of what the law was about. If I sat you down and started addressing you on the things of the law, the English law this morning, unless you're trained in legal profession, you won't have much of a clue. They knew about these things. And they had it within their framework of their understanding and their belief. Why do I say that? Well, because... It was always taught to them. In the synagogues, it was religiously, the religious leaders rather, would, would, would bring the teaching of the law. And when I say the law, I'm talking about the Torah. I'm talking about the, five, the first five books of the, of the Bible. I'm talking about what was known as the Mosaic Law. And why was it known as the Mosaic Law? Well, because Moses got the law from God on Mount Sinai, as we know. And that's where we're talking about the law. And they would have known about this, not only because it was taught in the synagogues, but also because families would have brought up their children in the knowledge of what the commandments and the law were, because they would recite them to them at home. They would get them to repeat it. And so by the time they got to adult, yeah, we know what the law says. By and large, we have this ingrained within our makeup. Now, when we're talking about the synagogues, just briefly, let me tell you, that is not the temple in Jerusalem where God's dwelling place was and where the Pharisees and where the the Levites attended to, to, to go about their religious duties. No, the synagogues, rather like the local churches, were places where people would assemble, where the, where the law would be taught, where it would be read, but where they could also just take part in the community of the synagogue. And of course, as we are in the local church here. This section that I'm bringing you this morning is a rather massive 36 Verses. Okay, it's running from Matthew 5, 13 through to 48. And Jesus, in this section, brings eight areas of teaching. How many Beatitudes were there? Can anyone remember? Come on, how many Beatitudes? There were eight. How many areas in this? Eight. There's a sort of unity to it, okay? And these are the areas, and I think we're going to get them up on the screen, because we're not going to be able to talk about each one of these areas this morning. But the areas that Jesus talked about were salt and light. He talked about the law. He talked about murder. He talked about adultery. He talked about divorce. He talked about oaths. He talked about taking revenge. And then he talked about loving your enemies. So eight areas. Now, before, because I know you think like me, you think, well, that's Sunday lunch done. When am I getting that today? I'm not going to cover all eight areas. All right? But, by the grace of God, I'm going to go for five. 
So that'll take us through to about four, okay? <laughs> <laughs> now my knee won't say that, so you're all right. You're okay, you're okay. Now, before Jesus starts to talk about the law, he first talks to the people about this thing, salt and light. Oh yeah, we know what this means, we all say. And it's a sort of link, if you will, from the Beatitudes to his teaching on legal matters. What do I mean? Well, the Beatitudes you remember from the teaching that Pastor Jonathan has brought us is he was, this is the way that you ought to live. And if you can live in this fashion, in this style, it will bring, what? Blessing and contentment to your lives. If you undertake to fulfill that. If you live it out, you would have an influence, a good influence, as indeed we can have a good influence on the people, the family, the friends, the neighbors, the, 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 employ, the employees and employers around us. Why? Because we're living for godly reasons. We're living with godly character and we're living in righteous ways. So why did Jesus use these terms salt and light? Well, first of all, we know what salt does. Salt is faulty. And we use it to flavor. They used it for flavor too. But I'll tell you what else they used it for. They used it for preserving, for putting off decay. So they'd take fish, they'd take meat, obviously no refrigeration services, wrap it, pack it in salt. It would keep the thing for so much longer than if it was just left, obviously, in those temperatures. And also light, well, we know light, light illuminates darkness, quite simply understood. So to following Jesus' teaching, to follow in the ways of the Beatitudes, was to be to live, you and I, as salt and light. Salt covered things to preserve, putting off decay. So, so it's, a sort of, it's a sort of parallel that if we live lives that outwork the Beatitudes, we're putting off things like worldliness, the things that come and inhabit people's lives, and we give a different flavor to the world. Light is the light of Jesus. It's not the light that we bring to the fore. You remember Mark, when he was leading us last week, was, was talking about Jesus saying, I am, one of the famous I am statements of Jesus, I am the light of the world. And then here he is in verse 14 of this chapter saying, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And you think, well, how do we juggle with that? Well, the fact of the matter is that we live in this style, then our light radiates and touches lives around the people. And the Apostle Paul was always picking up on this theme. He was always talking about light in his letters. I've got two examples here in Philippians, in Philippians 2 and verse 15. Then you will shine as light, a light a, sorry, shine among them like stars in the sky as you firmly hold on to the word of life. In his Ephesian letter at 5.8, he says, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children in the light. And I, I found this quote from, from the evangelist D.L. Moody. Beautiful, beautiful statement. He just said, Lighthouse people blow no horns, they just shine. Yeah, we use words. We can use words, but our lives, if they are shining then that's all they need to do for Jesus. Amen. So with this, this, this as it were, lead-in, Jesus then goes on to talk about matters of the law. And first, he starts to talk about murder. Oh, well, he begins to say, oh, sorry, first of all, he starts to talk about the law and his purpose in the law. And the first thing he says, and by qualifying what he has to say, is that I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to do away with it. 
I've come to uphold it and I've come to fulfill what it says in the prophets. And here it is. It's going to come up for Matthew 5.17. I do, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, to, to fulfill them. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he start when he's talking about things of the law, about I've come to fulfill them? Well, I think it's quite simply this. Some of those listeners would have already thought, well, Jesus, you know, your ministry is a little bit at odds with what the law teaches. You've already had run-ins with the Pharisees about healing on the Sabbath and doing things that are rather not in our way of believing they should be done. And some were actually claiming that Jesus was saying, forget the law. The law is passed. Do some other thing. No, Jesus, I'm not taking you down another religious route. I'm here to fulfill that what was given by God to Moses. No, he's not looking to uphold a long list of do's and don'ts that generations of Pharisees through, through and the scribes had added to the law. He's not talking about that. He's talking about fulfilling that that was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. What he is saying is what was important then is important now. And I have come to fulfill that that was given in that way. Now, the interesting thing is, is that we know that the law requires a standard for it to be fulfilled, for it to be completed. And do you know what that standard is? If, if I keep 98% of all the law, but fail on 2%, I have failed. So the law requires perfection. Perfection. This is really key. And here is Jesus saying, For I tell you that unless, in Matthew 5.20, your righteousness... Remember, he's talking to people like you and me. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not certainly enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Unless your life is lived far more, key two words, far more than what the Pharisees are achieving, you have no hope of salvation in the law. So what Jesus is saying is that, that, that no one is ever going to attain salvation through the law and trying to keep the law because it demands perfection. And we know we're not attaining that. The Pharisees, yes, strive to do that in their own efforts. Boy, did they try to do that. But you, have said Jesus, have got to live to a level that is far above what they are able to attain Oh, come on, Jesus, how can we possibly attain that level? Now, we will soon see as we move on, as Jesus starts to talk about specific areas of law, that what he's saying is that it's not just in your action what matters. It's not just what you do. It's how you think. It's how you're motivated. It's what goes on in here that brings about what you really are like as a person. So to demonstrate this, he then moves on to murder. Whoa. He starts by saying, 21 and 22, verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said. You see, you have heard it said. They know the law. And yet you've heard it said. Yeah, we know this. You have heard it said to the, that to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Well, yeah, people knew what the commandment says. They knew that, yeah, we don't, we don't commit murder. That's not what we do. No problem with that. Jesus got that one sorted. But they knew, and we know as well, that, that murder is a heinous crime. And it was punishable then by death, as indeed it is in many countries still in this world. However, what Jesus is doing, he's raising the bar. There's the bar. There it is, guys. It's not there where you thought it was. It's here. And they're like, what? He's not allowing people to focus on literal murder. He's not allowing them just to say, oh, yeah, I shall not murder. No, I've not, I'm, not, I'm not murdered anyone. I'm fine. I'm clean. He's saying, no, 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 no. The bar, guys, is here. Not where you think it is here. He starts to talk about expressions of hate, even feelings of hate towards other people. Surely, surely they don't feel, they, they don't uh, fall rather to be, to be judged in the same way. But yes, Jesus says they are. He says that even if you are angry with someone, you are liable to be judged. What? This is crazy things. And then he goes on to demonstrate. He, says, he takes a term called raka, R-A-C-A, raka. We don't use that. I don't know if they still do in Israel to these days. But the term raka basically meant you fool, you idiot, you dunderhead, you empty head. Call it whatever, raka. And he said, if you are caught using that word, and you were caught using it in the hearing of certain people, you could have been brought up before the religious council and be brought to task for using such a term. But Jesus says, Jesus says, if you risk, never mind that, even if you risk calling someone a fool, you're putting yourself in the danger of the fires of hell. Now, now, I know racket is a four-letter word, and I know fool is a four-letter word, but I can think of other four-letter words, and I'm sure that you can, that if it was ever used against someone, it might put them in a bit of a dodgy place in far as the, the, the religious teachers were concerned. But raka, fool? But Jesus says yes. So here's the question. It is a question. What is Jesus getting at by ramping things up to this level? What's the point, Jesus? Look, it says in the law, I shall not murder, you shall not murder. I haven't murdered. So why are you coming at me in this way? Do you know what he's doing? He's looking at this. He's looking at the condition of our hearts. Always the law is meant to be looked and, 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 and analyzed through the condition of our hearts. And this is key in this area. And as you will see, it's key in every area he addresses in this chapter. You see, people's understanding, and it's my understanding, that if I don't murder someone, I'm not guilty of the commandment. It's just simply not. I'm not guilty of breaking a commandment that says, do not murder. I've not murdered. I'm not guilty. But Jesus is saying, if you're angry alone, that is enough. It's not a matter of what you just do. It's what, how you think and how you are, are, are judging people. And it's because it's all rooted in a thing called sin. We know this is all rooted in sin. We don't get off the hook just because we haven't actually murdered someone. We are on the hook because we have a condition that really is vengeful and is really spiteful at times. Yes, I was spitting mad. Yes, I voiced some vengeful words against someone. But I didn't go so far as to kill them. Therefore, I'm not guilty. But that's not how Jesus is telling us we should look. We're guilty because anger unrighteous anger, let's call it its right name, sin, dwells in each and every one of our hearts. Therefore, we are all guilty. And what? We are on the wrong side of the murder line as Jesus wants us to understand it. 
That, I don't know about you, makes me feel a very different way of thinking. He then moves on to this very delicate subject of adultery. He says this, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the people understood that. We shall not commit adultery. Yeah, it's in the commandments, Jesus. We understand that. We've got it packaged. We have it understood. So they thought. Jesus goes to show that they do not. Because what does he do again? He raises the legal bar on this commandment. And let me just say, for clarity's sake, because I don't know, let's not assume. Adultery is defined in the dictionary as this. As voluntary sexual relations between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. Okay? Pretty much guess we got that, but just to underline it. So, with murder, it would be the same. Anything less than the physical act of murder would render a person not guilty. No. 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 Oh, come on, Jesus. That's what this says. You shall not commit. And that's the key word. Surely you shall not commit. I didn't commit, so I'm not guilty. No, no, no. No, he says. And can I just say, isn't this so typical of human nature all the time? And, and of course, Jesus knew the condition and said he knew the condition of the human heart. And boy, did he. It always wants to justify itself. We always want to put ourselves in the no, not me category on everything and anything. Yeah, but you don't understand. Yeah, we do understand. But it wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't quite. But always looking to be exonerated. And you see, I've got a sympathy with the people here because the way the law, the Mosaic law is written is not the same as an English law today. If you get an English law today, you'll get the law and then you'll get 16,000 subclauses of what it means and how its application is and how every way that could be applied. So you're left with no misunderstanding of what the... It just says here, do not commit adultery. Didn't commit adultery, not guilty. But that's not what Jesus is saying. It's always, always, always the interpretation. He's in Jesus challenges that interpretation. He says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery, but no, I haven't. Yes, you have in your heart. Gosh, this must have been another, what? Are you having a laugh, Jesus, moment? <laughs> I would have just been gobsmacked listening to this teaching. Now, let's remember that the punishment for adultery is the same punishment as for murder. Simply death and horribly stoned to death. That was the punishment at that time. And also, can I ask you to eradicate from your minds that this is only talking about married men. It's not about married men, it's about people. You will remember, who was it that was brought before Jesus during his ministry to have judgment passed upon her? A woman caught in adultery. Now, I take, now it takes two to tango, but it was the woman who was brought. I know for political reasoning and why they did it. It was the woman that was brought. Can you remember Potiphar's wife? How she had lustful passions for the young, you know, um, for the young, for the young Joseph. So it applies to women as much as it applies to men. And the people again must have stood there, sat there, think, whoa, hold on a minute, Jesus, this is not what we understand. But again, where is Jesus pointing? Back to the heart. It's not the physical act of adultery he wants to look at that morning, 
as indeed he doesn't want us to focus on that physical. He wants to talk about our heart's for propensity to sin and the way in which we're enticed to inappropriate thinking and, 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 and lustful imaginings and all of these sort of things. You see, sin is not always external. It's not always there for everyone to gaze upon and to judge. It is sometimes, but it's often in here. And you can't see it in here. You can't see it in here. Outside, everything's normal and above board and very righteous looking. But is it the same in here and here? Jesus is saying, I know that it's not. An amazing ramping up of the thing. Always the human heart. And he tells his people, you've got to be on your guard, guys. On a practical level, we must not encourage anything. We're talk- Jesus is talking about adultery here. Sexual sin may be one of your problems, but it may be many other things. But he's saying, he's saying, do not give ground to temptation. Do not do that. We mustn't give ground. Anything that causes us to, oh, it's a betting shop, whatever it may be, do not give ground to temptation. Here's a biblical example, quickly. It was said of King David that he was a man after God's heart. And yet we know that he fell foul of this commandment, didn't he? He fell foul of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. How did he do that? Well, the scripture tells us. It says that he was walking out onto his balcony one evening and he looked and saw a woman bathing and he saw that she was very beautiful. Hold on a minute, David, how do you know she was beautiful? Well, it's obvious, wasn't it? He kept on looking. And continuing by looking, he saw those things and he gave way to what? Temptation. He gave way to temptation. You see, we may not be able to avoid every, 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 everything. We might not be able to avoid everything that, that might entice us. We, we, we can't certainly avoid every improper thought because we're just worldly as well as we are in Christ. But here is the bar, and it is a big bar. We can restrict a look to a glance. And we can restrict, and we can usher, rather, an impure thought straight out of our heads. Not having any of that, Lord. Instead of embellishing it and thinking about it and embracing it, which we are prone to do. Because if we don't, sin will take the upper hand. And if sin takes the upper hand, it will lead to worse situation further down the line. And big, big problems. And Jesus is warning the people about this. He's saying we need to take proper and stringent action. We haven't got time to look at it now, but you might remember if you read the chapter, he says, if this causes you to cut it off, if this causes you to gouge it out. (laughs) What? No, Jesus doesn't want us to walk around maimed and the half bits hanging off. But what he's saying is you need to be really stringent. You really need to take hold of sin and temptation and to treat it with what? abhorrence get rid of it see it for what it is deal with it deal with it keep it at bay and then people he spoke about dropping down a few of the subjects in chapter five to loving your neighbor loving your neighbor now i'm guessing the people were pretty speechless by now pretty so (laughs) what next jesus he said in verse 43 you have heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, here's an interesting fact. The fact, hate your enemies, was never in the Mosaic law. It doesn't appear. 
Have a look. Leviticus 19.18. It talks about love. It doesn't talk about hate at all. It's one of those little incidences where the scribes have been working along the way and they've added something to the law. They suddenly now are saying, we should hate our enemies. We shouldn't love them. The Old Testament law clearly says, no, love. Why should it say love? Because Israel have been set apart to live differently. They are required to shine as light. They are required to be salt and light as a nation to the nations around them. But they have increasingly become more and more like the nations around them to the point where, hate your enemies. Hate them. Hate them. Wasn't in the law. Wasn't in the law. Where's Jesus put in the spotlight? I think we're beginning to get the idea. He's pointing back at the heart. He's pointing back at the heart. You know, it's not often the things that we say or that we may do that exposes selfishness. It's not always those things. But there is something deep within you and me that wants to put ourselves in the number one slot. I'm going to do this, but by doing so, it makes me look good. Always wanting to put yourself in pole position. It's something within us. We were reading a book on, we are reading a book on Thursday morning, prayer meetings. It's about a book by a, a chap called Andrew Murray, and it, it is called uh, Absolute Surrender to God. And one of the things we read just, just struck me as we read it on Thursday morning. Self is our greatest curse. Oh, yes, amen. It's always self. You don't think it is. No, I'm a charitable person. I'm the most understanding and kind and caring person. No, yeah, yeah, there may be lots of manifestations of those beautiful things to be seen, but it's the curse of self. Always, but where do I look in this position that we can so easily take up? And it's so corrupts in, it's so deceitful, it is so hurtful that actually what we end up doing can do, even Christian good men and women, is to hurt the ones we love the most by what we say, do, how often that happens. Let alone anyone that could fall into a camp called enemy. have no enemies. But yeah, this is what we do to those that we love. So I would say if we're prone to backbiting, if we're prone to, to, to having a poke at our neighbours, as it were, behind closed doors, if we are flying off the handle to our family, if we are bad-mouthing or judging brothers and sisters in the church, how are we ever going to love those that are walking out on that high street this morning? How do we do that? How do we move from that position to that position? Look, the antidote to this is in a name. And that name is Jesus. That name is Jesus. And, and, and do you see even the way that I am rather sort of very poorly trying to demonstrate these things? Jesus is saying it's about us two guys. It's not just about them. It's about us and what resides in us. So before we beat ourselves up and think, well, there's no hope there, is there? The answer is Jesus, because he is the antidote to all of this. And I've got to tell you this, if, 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 if the Bible were to end at the end of Matthew chapter 5, no hope. There's no hope for us. We're exposed for what we are, Jesus, and yes, there is no hope. You know, you might say, oh, but I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But he's focusing on our guilt-ridden hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is about three things to my understanding. First, it's about Jesus taking us deeper to what we understand he is saying and what the law is saying. He wants to take us to a new level of understanding. Not only that, but he wants to break up our worldly, our, 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 our self-justifying, our hard hearts. 
He wants to break those up to the point where we understand that it is sin that lurks within every one of us and therefore we are guilty before our holy God. He wants us to understand that and understand that clearly. Salvation for those on that mountainside, salvation for us today, salvation for those out there is only found in turning to Jesus, in turning to this one. It's not a matter of whether we've transgressed a commandment or, or, or whether we've, we've understood. The thing is that by our persistent leaning to doing things that are not of God, that this declares us, not guilty, uh, declares us guilty, very much guilty. And no much how much I study the law, no much how I try to practice the law, no much how I try to uphold the law, the law cannot save me. Why? Because I'm already sinful and I'm already stained and the law requires perfection. I haven't, I haven't even started out on the road. And if we continue with this whole idea of trying to please my mind, trying, trying to please my emotion, I'm trying to please my flesh, I'm trying to do what I think is right, but... We're simply lost. And we will always be in that position of trying to justify what I've done, justify what I've said. Yeah, but I was, I was, I was, I was able, wasn't I? It was reasonable for me to have done that or to have responded. No, it's not. It's not. But praise God that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, as he said he would be, as in indeed he was. I can't scratch the mountain that's called legal observation. I can't scratch it and make any impact. There's nothing to be obtained by legal obedience because I'm guilty at every imaginable level. But I can attain everything in placing my faith, my trust, my hope in the one who has fulfilled the law. And I can attain status before a holy God. What? In the way that Kevin's done a good old job? No. Because Jesus has done a good old job for me. And he has saved me. He's not, yeah, but you're not, you're on a scale of one to ten. Kev, I'd put you at about a six. Probably a bit higher. But, but it's not about that. God knows that I am completely and utterly sinful. But he has sent Jesus that I may be cleansed. Jesus laid down his sinless life that we may take up a life in Christ. We attain righteousness. When our faith is placed in him alone. Lord, I need to ask your forgiveness. I need to come into faith in that position. And we can take up his righteousness. What, my righteousness? No, not your righteousness, Kevin. His righteousness. You put it on like a cloak. I can stand before God because I shine. No, Jesus shone. And now I'm in Christ. He sees me through the lens of Jesus. And that's the only way. It is the only way. If you've never received Jesus, both you at home both you in this room maybe, if you've never received Jesus as this Lord and Savior, then I can tell you today, today, this very moment can be the change. The time when you stop struggling to try to be a good person. The day that you stop trying to do your best. The day that you can actually lay down that struggle and take up the life that Jesus is already victorious in because the standard is perfection. Let me tell you this. Perfection came as a baby born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 uh, years ago. A baby who, who grew in unfathomable wisdom and grace in God. Who learnt these things. Who was tempted, what, in, on the odd occasion? No, the word says he was tempted in every way. And yet was 
without sin. Without sin. And he took that unique life and at just the right time laid it down on a cross. So that if we believe in this God, believe in this Jesus and his glorious third day resurrection, where he now ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father until he makes enemies his footstool, we can have that status as sons and daughters. And that life in Jesus begins the moment we say, can't do it in my own strength, Lord. But I choose to believe that you've done. I choose to believe you're the victor. I choose to believe you fulfilled the letter of the law. I choose to believe that you are my righteousness. I choose to believe that in my strength I am nothing, but in you that I'm more than a conqueror. Because he comes with his spirit at that time. Let us please, brothers and sisters, not be put down by what we read and what Jesus is teaching. He teaches this to bring us into understanding. Look, the law is far more than what you think it is. And you're guilty. But I am not guilty. I am the saviour of the world. I am the light of the world. And I want you to be the light wherever you go. What in your strength? No. In my Holy Spirit's strength that I will put in you. And that is the hope that we have in the law. Because it has been fulfilled by a wonderful, loving, heavenly saviour. I just want to say, let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you, thank you, thank you that we have Jesus. You could have cast us as far as the east is from the west if you would have cared to, Lord. But you are the covenant-keeping king who saw our inability, who saw our hopelessness, who saw our wretchedness, who saw us kicking around with no hope. And you sent hope. You sent Jesus. And you suffered and died. You were ridiculed. You were beaten. You were spat upon. You were scorned by the sin that dwells in each and every one of us. And yet you didn't walk away, Lord Jesus. You went to the cross and you laid down your life and you were gloriously resurrected because why? Sin had no hold on a unique life that had not succumbed and you now reign in heaven and invite sons and daughters to be part of your kingdom's plan and purpose. And we want to thank you for the strength that it brings us and those that you are going to populate heaven with in these days and the weeks and the months and the years until you roll it all up and come back, Jesus. So we thank you for the law, but we thank you, Jesus, that you are the beautiful fulfillment of every single command. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That was a lot of scripture. There is a lot there. Please, if you didn't have a chance to read over, do so. Read the whole gospel, but do read that with it in mind of what Jesus is saying and how we really ought to be grasping what he truly means. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.